1: I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed, where every week we bust the myths and clarify the facts about breastfeeding and beyond. Now, today we're going to talk about breastfeeding and we're going to go a little bit beyond. We're going to talk about sleeping with your baby. This is such a hot topic. And after really trying hard to find her, we asked Dr. Helen Ball to come on and talk with us today. I know you're very much going to enjoy everything that she has to say. Dr. Ball, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mary. For those of you who might not be familiar with her, and I've been following her work for quite a while now, uh, she was trained in human biology and biological anthropology, and obtained her PhD at the University of Massachusetts Amherst in 1992. She established the Parent-Infant Sleep Lab at Durham University in 2000 and was promoted to professor in 2007 and served as head of the Anthropology Department 2013-16. to Her research examines the sleep ecology of infants and their parents, including attitudes and practices related to infant sleep, behavioral and physiological monitoring of infants and their parents during sleep, infant sleep development, and the discordance between cultural sleep preferences and biological sleep needs. She conducts research and contributes to national and international policy and practice guidelines on infant care. In 2016, she was appointed as chair of the Scientific Committee for the Lullaby Trust And in 2018, Durham University received the Queen's Anniversary Prize for Further and Higher Education for Helen's research and outreach work. She is a board member of the International Society of the Study and Sleep of Infant Deaths, that is ISPID, and directs the Durham Infancy and Sleep Center and Baby Sleep Information Source. So... Let me tell you why I think this is really exciting, and it is that most mothers that I know, if they are breastfeeding, they want to sleep with their babies, but at least here in the United States, that is very much discouraged by the, quote, experts, but I think it would be very difficult to find an expert any greater than Dr. Helen Ball or another guest whom you'd heard earlier this year. Dr. James McKenna, and by the way, both of them, along with some other very top-notch people, uh, authored a recent uh, protocol from the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but anyway, uh, Dr. Ball, could you please start a little bit with talking to us about the popular perceptions of the link between feeding type And infant sleep, that is, the belief that formula promotes infant sleep, breastfeeding, eh, you won't be able to sleep if you have your baby.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting, actually. Um, We've done a number of interviews with parents and focus group studies looking at what parents um, are told kind of as part of popular culture um, around sleep and what they hear, what they're hearing from parents. their own parents, from their neighbors, their friends, etc. is that if they want to get any sleep when their children are babies, they need to be putting them on formula because formula promotes infant sleep and breastfeeding and sleep just isn't happening. Yes. Um, so it's, you know, it's a, it's a popular, um, I would like to say, myth out there. Um, I suspect in the past it might not have been such a myth Um but nowadays, it certainly doesn't hold true um, that breastfeeders um, get less sleep. Let like breastfeeding parents or breastfeeding babies get less sleep than formula feeding parents and babies. Um, but we can we can talk about that research in a minute. I think
1: your main point here is that having less sleep because you are a breastfeeding mother is a
2: perception, mm-hmm. but not
1: necessarily a reality.
2: Well. People, the the perception is that because breastfed babies need to feed frequently during the night, they must be getting less sleep, and therefore their mums must be getting less sleep too. Whereas um, the the notion is that formula-fed babies, you can fill them up with a big bottle before they go to bed, and it's Uh, It helps them to keep staying asleep for longer periods and so you you don't have to feed them as frequently in the night and therefore you don't have to wake up as frequently in the night.
1: Now, this is interesting to me because you are an ocean away from me and for those of you who might be wondering, uh, I would estimate that Dr. Ball is probably 250 miles or so from London and she's telling me the same thing that i have been seeing here in the united states for as long as i've been a nurse she just everything she just said mm-hmm. that's exactly so it it seems to me like this is not just an american thing it it's it's elsewhere as well
2: yeah well i mean one of the one of the ways in which uh, formula companies have promoted their product over the years is um by you know telling people that it will help their babies to sleep, to sleep. Uh, yep. and intimating that breastfeeding um, is is going to be more difficult at night?
1: Yes, I would agree. So, talk to us about the research, either your own research or others' research, that shows how uh, the uh, the bottle fed, excuse me, formula fed and breastfeeding babies uh, differ.
2: So, there've been a number of studies done. We've done some of them, and and there are many more in the published literature around the world. Um, that have looked at actual durations of sleep, um, longest sleep bouts, those sorts of things for both mothers and babies by different feed types. And they've really busted this myth about formula-fed babies and mothers getting more sleep. Um, The duration and the longest sleep period are pretty much identical for breastfed and formula-fed babies and for their moms. Although we did find in one of our studies um, that moms perceive their baby's longest sleep periods to be different uh, depending on what they're feeding them. Um, And we can speculate about what the reasons for that are. But there is a difference between breastfed and formula-fed babies and their moms with regards to sleep. And that is sleep fragmentation. So they're getting the... They're getting the same amount of sleep in total, or in some studies, the breastfeeders were getting slightly more, but they have shorter bouts of sleep. So the baby does wake more frequently to feed, but moms get back to sleep more quickly, or the feeding period lasts less long, or for whatever reason, the um, the disruption is not as significant Um for each feeding bout as it is for formula feeders. So the formula feeders are awake less frequently but for longer. The breast are awake more frequently but for shorter. So overall it adds up to the same amount of sleep. And did these studies
1: differentiate between whether or not the baby was in the bed with the mother?
2: Some of them do and some of them don't. So um, there, there, most of the studies um, don't say anything about where the baby was Um, That's one of the things that we've been particularly interested in, because one of the things that we've discovered through our interview work with breastfeeding mums is that bringing the baby into bed is one of the strategies that they use in order to make nighttime breastfeeding easier.
1: I have had mothers tell me that I've had them say, oh, you know, I just kind of well, we cuddle up and she nurses and I go back to sleep and then I guess she nurses again and we go back to sleep. And it's almost as though they are half aware and half not aware. And from what I can tell, they seem to be getting a good night's rest. Did you measure mother's perceptions of how restful they felt?
2: So this varies. And I think this is um, one of those things that's probably... um, variable by individual mums, sort of personality and temperament. Mm. Some mums some find that close proximity with their baby, letting the baby just latch on whenever it wants to, etc., and, and drifting off to sleep while they're feeding to be something that's really relaxing um, and they feel that their sleep is not tremendously disrupted by it. But there are others for whom every movement of the baby wakes them. And so, you know, they're much more on edge while they've got the baby in the bed. So for them, it's not as relaxing an experience. So I think, you know, it really does make a difference, kind of like um, how the mom feels about it.
1: Do you think that we have scared mothers into that, uh, what's the word,
2: Uh, that vigilance kind Mm -hmm. of thing? I think there are moms out there who are very, very anxious about bringing their baby into bed, and I think that has been exacerbated um, by some of the fear campaigns around bed sharing. That's that's definitely true. Um, so there are there are moms for whom um, the idea of bed sharing is is something that they think before they have their baby they would never ever 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 do. It's just not part of their um, agenda <laughs> yeah. for early infancy. And then you talk to them a month or two after having their baby and it's like, what else could I do? He wouldn't sleep. I had to feed him in the night. If I'd put him down, he just screamed. And they, you know, they figure out that the only thing sometimes that they can do in the middle of the night is bring that baby next to them. But they're very, very uh, scared about it.
1: Yes, because at least here in the US, we really preach the idea that you should not be in the uh, bed with the baby. Mm -hmm. And then mothers feel that they must be compliant. And they also feel that they're doing something dangerous. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I can't remember if it was your research or someone else's that also showed that the mothers or the parents, I should say, were reluctant to tell the nurse the doctor whoever that they were bed sharing because they felt that they were doing something bad or
2: wrong mm mm-hmm. yeah parents often will lie to their health professional yep. about whether they have whether they have the baby in the bed because they feel like they'll get told off definitely so so pediatricians um in the this country health visitors aren't getting an accurate picture of how many of their clients are actually bringing right. their baby into bed because um, we found um, when we went and asked as anthropologists who weren't, you know, um, giving them health advice, we right. were just asking them about what happened at night and where, where, where are all the places your baby sleeps and do you, do you ever bring your baby into bed with you? We found that about half of the population, half of the new parents um, in the UK, we were bringing their babies yeah. into bed on a regular yeah. basis. But Absolutely. before we did that piece of research, people would say to me, Well, I don't know why you're interested in studying this topic because nobody in the UK sleeps with their baby. Um, oh. <laughs> and I was like, um, Reality I don't check. I think that's true. <laughs> 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 Not talked to any new mums lately, have you? <laughs>
1: All right. Well, you know, I've even had some parents preface it with, Well, I know you'll disapprove, mm-hmm. but. I know Uh, I
2: shouldn't be doing it. I know I should be doing
1: it. Right. And you're thinking, oh, for crying out loud, I would really rather that you do safe sleep practices Mm -hmm. rather than for Mm -hmm. us to just pretend like it's not happening. Uh, Before we get to that, though, which is another whole loaded thing, uh, you talked about certainly mothers do bring babies into bed in order to help them get a, a better night's rest. Are there other strategies that you've seen mothers use in order to manage the night feedings?
2: Well, of course, one of the big ones that is um, uh, quite problematic is that when they think that they shouldn't bring the baby into bed, they'll get up and they'll go and feed the baby sitting downstairs on the sofa um, because they think that that's safer. It's better to to sit up and feed. But of course, the effect of breastfeeding makes you drowsy. And so what will happen oftentimes is that mums and babies fall asleep accidentally while they're feeding on the sofa. And then they're in a much more dangerous position than they would have been if they practice safe bed sharing on a flat surface.
1: Of course. Uh, yeah. Also in the UK, are you using those little sidecar deals? Do you know what I mean?
2: Mm, yes. Yeah, so, so those are quite popular with new mums. Okay. Um, So, and and particularly um, for parents who have reasons that we would encourage them not to bed share, for instance, if they're smokers, and there are various reasons we'll talk about, I'm sure, um, for when it's not a good idea to to bed share, um, then having a sidecar crib um, or a co-sleeper or whatever you call it. Um, a three-sided cot that attaches to your bed so that the baby's got its own sleep space but you can still touch it and pat it and stroke it and it knows where you are, etc. And it's easy to kind of uh, move it towards you to feed and then put it back again. Those are really useful devices um, that are kind of halfway between bed sharing completely and having the baby in its own cot. Well, and from a clinical standpoint at least, it
1: seems to me that the mother can be more aware of her baby's movement or cues or whatever if they are in very close proximity, as opposed to 40 feet down the hall in their own Mm -hmm. room, certainly. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yes, uh, for those of you who are tuned in, I am talking with Dr. Helen Ball, who is at the Department of Anthropology at Durham Infancy and Sleep Center. And we are talking about sleep as related to the breastfed infants. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest.
4: Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
5: Do you need breastfeeding training for your hospital staff?
4: Maybe you need to offer all 15 sessions to meet the baby-friendly requirements. Or perhaps you need just a few sessions.
5: Check out Marie's new course, Best Practices for Breastfeeding Management. It's perfect for improving your exclusive breastfeeding rates and helping staff earn contact hours.
4: You know Marie will focus on the clinical outcomes, not just the training process.
5: Marie's course offers the ultimate in flexibility and convenience. It's online 24-7, so staff can study at at their own pace.
4: You can use the course for all of your staff or just your newly hired staff. And Marie offers a tracking report so you can tell who has started or finished.
5: Best of all, staff can print out their own certificate when they finish.
4: Don't waste another minute trying to develop your own course.
5: Trust America's leading breastfeeding educator to provide staff training that works.
4: Call Marie today at 703-787-9894. 703-787-9894
1: Hi everyone, welcome back. I'm Marie Biancuzo. I'm here today with Professor Helen Ball and we are talking about sleep as related to the breastfeeding couplet. Before we continue, I would just like to remind you that if you are trying to earn your 90 hours of lactation specific education in order to qualify for the IBLCE exam, please visit me at mariebiancuso.com. That's MarieBiancuzo.com and you will see that I have both online and live options. So Dr. Ball, before we stopped for the break, we were talking about the fact that some mothers choose to have their babies in the bed, some mothers have a sidecar or what we here in the U.S. call a co-sleeper, which I believe is a brand name, but uh, all of that speaks to the idea of sleep proximity. So Why is
2: sleep proximity so important? Well, this is something that we spent quite a number of years researching in our um, sleep center in the UK, because one of the hypotheses that we had was that um, if you vary the proximity of the mother and the baby, um, it might affect the um, prolactin The buildup of prolactin in the mother's uh, bloodstream, the onset of uh, copious lactation um, and downstream kind of lactation outcomes. So we did a number of studies um, in one of the local maternity hospitals where they allowed us to go and film mothers and babies um, on the first couple of postnatal nights so that we could get a very accurate record of the amount of breastfeeding that was happening, the frequency and the duration. And we did it as a randomized trial where we um, randomly allocated mothers to sleep either with their babies in the normal uh, standalone bassinet next to the bed, which is the rooming in condition, which is what all mothers in UK hospitals receive these days, Uh or two um, intervention conditions. One of them was to have the baby in a three-sided crib, a sidecar crib attached to the mother's bed. And the other one was to just have the baby directly in bed with the mom. And we looked at the frequency with which the moms breastfed in those three conditions, the amount of time they spent breastfeeding, as well as some other things like how much sleep they got, how much sleep the babies got, et cetera, how, much st- how many calls they made to the staff, and things like that. And what was really, really interesting. Was that the mums and the babies who were in close proximity, that is, they didn't have any kind of barrier between them, So that was the breast the bed sharing condition and the sidecar crib condition. They breastfed twice as frequently throughout Whoa. the night as ah. the ones who were in the 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 um normal rooming in. So normal rooming in the baby is not far away. The babies just in a bassinet at the mother's, you know, within mum's arm reach. Mm-hmm. But those babies were unable to alert their mums when they were awake. Right. So they would, we would see them on the videos. They would do all the classic feeding cues. They would be rocking their heads and clicking their tongues and stuffing their fists in their mouth, and they were clearly ready to feed, but mum was asleep and the baby had a barrier between the mom and and himself or herself and couldn't alert the mom that that they were, you know, they didn't get to the point of crying. Right. Right. But the babies who were in bed or in the sidecar crib, they only had to make the slightest move, and moms were awake. They were checking the baby. They were offering the breast. And this has got, you know, such an important physiological consequence for moms because... The more times you put the baby to the breast in the first few days after the mm. after the baby's born mm-hmm. the quicker your prolactin rises your prolactin has to reach a threshold for your, for copious milk production to start and if you if it goes too long between feeds your prolactin drops back down to baseline before the next feed if you're feeding frequently The prolactin keeps rising. It doesn't have a chance to drop all the way back down before you get to the next feed. So it hits that threshold quicker. Milk comes in faster. Milk supply is more copious. Mums can see that they can feed their babies. They're more confident Mm -hmm. that they can feed their babies. And those, those mums and babies were still breastfeeding, um... More of them were still breastfeeding at follow-up four to six months afterwards. I was just
1: going to say, I bet
2: six months, I betcha.
1: Uh, Mm -hmm. I've got literally a pile of your studies in a folder sitting four inches from my hands here, but (laughs) I did not see that study. When was that published?
2: That one was published in 2006, 2006. Um, okay. so we did it in around 2002, 2000 to 2002 to 2004, and it was published in 2006 in the Archives of Disease in, Ch- Disease oh, that's in good Childhood. Look.
1: Okay. Yeah, so it's a
2: UK journal. So that yep, might be yep. what we have. But,
1: across but that's it. a really good journal. Uh, I guess maybe it just wasn't as much on my radar then in, as it is now,
2: but that is very compelling. Yeah, it, it was, um. It was really quite a striking outcome, and it actually influenced um, maternity care services in the UK quite substantially. So a lot of hospitals um, started using sidecar cribs um, much more frequently than they had done. Um, And actually, what's interesting is a follow-up study to that one was done by my PhD student Kristen she was called Kristen Klingerman when she did it but she's Kristen, Dr. Kristen Tully now and she's oh, at the yes, Carolina Global it. Breastfeeding Institute yep, yep. and um, she looked at the use of sidecar cribs with uh, c-section mums who'd had c-sections and found that the mums um, were really um Benefited from having the sidecar cribs because of the difficulty they had reaching and stretching to get their babies out of the standalone bassinets. So she's gone on to kind of do more work with sidecar cribs in the in the US, um, and has you know has has developed a couplet care bassinet, basically to um, to try and test in a big trial in the US to to look at the some of these outcomes. For
1: those of you who are interested in that particular study, it is uh, Kristen P. Tully, uh, 2012, and it was published in Journal of Human Lactation. One. Uh, I, I'm i just astonished with what you just told me because so often here in the U.S., we really fight just to get rooming in. Mm-hmm. And I know that mm-hmm. I tell that to some people I I offer live courses throughout the United States, and some people will say, "Marie, what are you talking about? You know, mm-hmm. we've we've been doing that for six or eight or ten years." I'm like, uh, "Okay," and I can barely have a chance to answer. But what somebody else says, "Oh, our boss won't even listen mm-hmm. to us about mm-hmm.
2: him." <laughs> so- I have done I have done grand rounds in some U.S. hospitals where the, you know, the infant feeding coordinator, the lactation consultants are so. Uh, frustrated oh, yeah. about the fact that they still have nurseries and babies are still taken away from moms oh, for yes. extended periods and the entire night. And, you know, it really does undermine mom's ability to establish breastfeeding. It's Absolutely. important to have the baby there. Um, well,
1: that that thing that you just said about the prolactin levels and the responsiveness of the videos, I'm like, Well, hello, Mm -hmm, because mm
2: -hmm. it's common sense really, isn't it? When you think about how it works, why are we doing what we're doing? But there's a whole history to, you know, um, anesthesia in in childbirth, which made mums unconscious, which made them unable to take care of their babies immediately after delivery, which is why hospital nurseries were invented in the first place, through to the whole era of infection control and babies had to be in a sterile environment and, you know, all of this kind of these kinds of things have perpetuated this separation. Um, but it really isn't in the mums and the babies' best interests.
1: No, not at all. And I would also say I have probably worked more night shifts than most maternity nurses I know who are breastfeeding advocates. And I will tell you, what you saw on video, I have seen with my own eyeballs, and I know that is happening. Mm-hmm. So we can't just pretend like it isn't there because you've got a, a proof, you've got real scientific evidence I've got just a lot of anecdotal experience, Mm but it's absolutely true. So help me with this. It seems to me that many mothers have gotten the message that bed sharing is sort of prohibited. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've touched on this, but can you go a little deeper about why this really undermines breastfeeding? What are some of the big factors here?
2: Well, I mean, if you're telling mums that they can't have their babies in bed with them and they're trying to get breastfeeding established, you know, they're not, it's not only making breastfeeding more difficult for them. So, you know, they've got a bigger mountain to climb because they have to get out of bed and go get the baby every couple of hours. And, you know, by the time they fed it and put it back, it's going to be waking up to feed again another hour and a half or whatever. Um It encourages, therefore, mums to to give their babies formula. It encourages them to supplement because um, they want to have, you know, a bit of sleep during the night. And dad says, well, you know, why don't you let me do one feed in the night? And, of course, the minute they start – you know giving the baby formula during the night that starts to undermine their supply because its supply works on a supply and demand system as we all know, and it's got melt's gotta be removed in order to produce more so giving giving the baby you know just one bottle of formula can start to cause mum's supply to to dwindle if it's done on a regular basis um and it that just burst. you know it becomes a downward spiral in a way, yes. That first bottle
1: I have found leads to the next bottle.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: I've even had fathers tell me, I felt so bad for my wife, for my partner. Uh, she was so tired. I, I just I, I really want to do it more often because she really needs her sleep. And so mm-hmm. we, we get a whole lot of this needs her sleep mentality. And I agree, she does need her sleep, but it sounds like research has disproven that she's getting any more... Um, Minutes of sleep total.
2: Yeah. So if she if if she um, if she's discouraged from having the baby in the bed, then that does undermine her sleep. But if she if she's happy to have the baby next to her and just let the baby latch when it needs to, it it's a bit of a skill. It takes a little while to learn how to breastfeed lying down. Um, but once you've got it, it is so much easier than getting up and, you know, going, getting out of bed and going, sitting somewhere else to feed, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, as we said, if you if you get out of bed and go and sit somewhere like on the sofa, the chances are you're going to fall asleep Absolutely. in that position at some point, And that increases your hazards. That increases your hazards more than if you stayed in the bed with the baby. I totally agree. And yet people think
1: that they're doing the right thing because they're not in the bed because we've prohibited the bed.
2: Because the bed's become sort of demonized.
1: Yeah, Demonized, yes, that's a really great word. Yes, indeed. So let's talk about what uh, is sometimes called the instinctive protective position or I see the uh, uh, Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine called it the... Uh, uh, the creative curl, the cuddle curl, curl, right. (laughs) Uh, Talk to us about what that means. Dr. McKenna talked to us a little bit about that too. Okay. Mm -hmm. But talk to us about what that means and how it is advantageous.
2: Okay, so in our lab, in uh, Professor McKenna's lab, in studies in New Zealand and also in Bristol in the UK, where people have videoed, breastfeeding mums and babies sleeping together at different ages of of babies, we've all found that breastfeeding mums sleep with their babies in a very characteristic way. And the mums curl up around the baby. They make a space for the baby to sleep with their bodies. So what we see in our videos in the home and in the hospital and in the lab is that mums will put the baby flat on its back, on the mattress, well down from the pillows, at their breast height, because, you know, this is the obviously convenient place for the baby's head to be if they want to breastfeed. (laughs) Right. So the baby's flat on its back, on the mattress, at mum's breast height, and mum curls up around the baby um, with her arm above the baby's head. So her lower arm is kind of bent above the baby's head, And her knees are drawn up underneath the baby's feet. So she's making a space for the baby to sleep in. And the the position that she's in means that she can't roll onto the baby because her knees and her elbows are in the way. Um, It also means that she can easily control the covers over the baby because her upper arm is usually on top of the covers or around the baby. So the covers get moved around up and down off the baby's legs, etc., to modulate the baby's temperature. We see her um, touching the baby's chest, feeling mm-hmm. for its breathing, touching the baby's forehead, feeling for its temperature and going back to sleep. Um, and in the morning when we say, do you know how much you checked your baby in the night? Mums will go, no, I've no idea I did that. You know, she, they don't <laughs> realize that they're doing it. But this position... I thought, yeah, it looks like something that, you know, breastfeeding mums seem to do instinctively. They do. Um, but yes. I was really, really um, surprised myself with the, the postnatal ward study because those mums that we randomly allocated to have their babies in bed, they were first time mums. They didn't, we didn't give them any instruction about how to sleep with their baby. We just said, you'll have your baby in bed because it's a hospital bed and it's high and the floors are hard. We'll put a rail on the side, a side rail on the bed so the baby can't sure fall can. out. And sure. then you just do what you do. And every single one of them yes. adopted that exact same position. First night that just automatically what they did, put the baby breast height, curled up around the baby and just stayed there. Um, so, you know, I think that there's there's something about being a breastfeeding mom with a baby that that is the most um, automatic thing to do. That's what we do. And, you know, if you look at images of moms and babies through history and in different cultures, they're all doing the same thing. Absolutely. And I had the great blessing of
1: being able to work on a postpartum unit before we had all of this back to sleep and all of this SIDS scare and everything else, and I have seen these mothers, and I'm not saying that SIDS isn't real. Uh, for those of you who are listening, don't, don't misunderstand me. I am not diminishing its importance, but I have seen... I don't know, hundreds of mothers assume this position, and I never told them what to do because, frankly, I was too dumb to have known that there was such a thing as an instinctive position. But I guess that it really bears out the idea, and here I want to put on my labor and delivery hat for a minute. Women will assume the position that they that nature tells them to do do if the rest of us would just stay out. <laughs> and uh, y- clearly, you said to them, the baby's in the bed, everything's safe, you just do with the baby what you think you need to do, and sure enough, they did. That's what uh, they did. Uh, just, just hugely fascinating uh, with that. Uh, are there other reasons why um, mothers will bed share? You mentioned culture and mm-hmm. can you talk? To, you'd probably could talk to us all day about culture. That anthropology is kind of where you where you come from. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, talk to us a little bit about that.
2: Well, the you know, breastfeeding is only one reason why parents bring their babies into bed. There are lots of uh, there are lots of other reasons. Um, so when we've done interviews with parents and we've talked to them about you know what what was the reason that they brought the baby into bed, it might be it might be that um they they're they're separated from their babies during the day and 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 basically
1: they they are looking for that um connection so to speak
2: that's right so so they say you know because they're not with their baby all day um nighttime is their only opportunity to kind of um provide that that comfort and that contact and it makes them feel good and they Mm want to do it for their baby and their baby positively benefits from it um other families are more anxious you know they have their baby in bed with them because they're anxious about something happening to it in the night and they want to be there they want to be close by they want to make sure that you know if it if it stops breathing or it it has a um uh, Throwing up fit or whatever, you know that they can they can attend to it right away. Um, some some parents only bring their baby into bed occasionally,
1: mm-hmm, and they mm-hmm.
2: they do it because they know that it's a it's a technique that helps them to settle an unsettled baby. Um, it helps the baby uh, if it's ill. Um, it helps the baby to relax and calm down and you know get to sleep, et cetera so there are you know there are a lot of reasons why parents bring their babies into bed in the u k We have a large uh, population from South Asia and we've we've done interviews with South Asian mums about why they bring their babies into bed because that's the the cultural norm for them and to them that's a you know really silly question. They say things <laughs> like you know well, I know the English mums.' don't bring their babies into bed. But but it's what we do. It's how right. we look after babies. You never leave a baby by itself. You wouldn't dream of leaving a baby by itself. Um, and sleeping with a baby is just part of that. It's, it's part of our cultural identity. It's who we are. That's how we take care of babies. Um, so then trying to tell a, a family for whom it's part of their cultural identity that this is how you look after a baby properly, that they shouldn't have their babies in the bed. Well, You're not just telling them not to do something that makes their life easier, you're actually challenging their cultural identity. Absolutely. So they're not going to listen because, no, they don't. you know, you, it, this this is who they are and it, that does not make any sense to them. Uh, you know, I have
1: told people who are new to this, uh, uh, to, to healthcare, basically, I've said, no matter what we tell them, when they go home, they're going to do what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. So better to... Help them to do what they're going to do safely rather than to just tell them what to not do because I'm going to tell you they're going to do what they're going to do. Hey, everybody, don't go away. I will be right back with Dr. Holland Ball.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest.
4: Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
5: Do you need breastfeeding training for your hospital staff?
4: Maybe you need to offer all 15 sessions to meet the baby-friendly requirements. Or perhaps you need just a few sessions.
5: Check out Marie's new course, Best Practices for Breastfeeding Management. It's perfect for improving your exclusive breastfeeding rates and helping staff earn contact hours.
4: You know Marie will focus on the clinical outcomes, not just the training process.
5: Marie's course offers the ultimate in flexibility and convenience. It's online 24-7, so staff can study at their own pace.
4: You can use the course for all of your staff or just your newly hired staff. And Marie offers a tracking report so you can tell who has started or finished. Best
5: of all, staff can print out their own certificate when they finish.
4: Don't waste another minute trying to develop your own course.
5: Trust America's leading breastfeeding educator to provide staff training that works.
4: Call Marie today at 703-787-9894. 703-787-9894 and ask for your bulk discount.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm here today with Dr. Helen Ball, and she is talking to us about sleeping with your baby. Dr. Ball, before we went to break, we were talking about there are lots of reasons why people might bed share. It might be for cultural reasons, it might be because of breastfeeding, it might be warmth, it might be uh, that the parent is anxious about their baby, and so forth. But, uh, and by the way, I think you also would have, if I'd given you time, added to that to sometimes just lack of resources Mm -hmm. or even uh, just it just happened. And Mm -hmm. it's like, well, they weren't really planning on it, but it just happens. But uh, I made the comment here of, I don't think it's useful for us clinical people to tell people what to do because they may or may not do it when they go home. My question is really about what do they need to know in order to bed share and be safe? And by the way, I, I will let Dr. Ball define this, but I want to make sure that everyone understands that bed sharing is not the same as co-sleeping and bed sharing is not the same as the family bed. Dr. Ball, could you take just a moment to help us get clear about that, please?
2: Okay, so the, the, the some of these terms do get used interchangeably sometimes which makes it quite difficult to kind of figure out what people are talking about but in the research setting we tend to use co-sleeping to mean sleeping in close proximity but not necessarily on the same surface so co-sleeping might include room sharing where the baby is sort of at arm's length etc um bed sharing is when the the baby is on the same surface as the parent um, in the adult bed, so co-sleeping might include sofa sharing, whereas bed sharing should be exclusively in the adult bed. And then the family bed is is when you've got not just the baby, but you've got your other children who might be coming and sleeping in the bed as well. So it's a you know it's a kind of a broader um, set of individuals that we're talking about.
1: And for those of you who are listening, understand that. Uh, Everything that she has said so far about bed sharing, she has not. We cannot extrapolate to the family bed. If you've got the toddler, the uh, golden retriever, whatever
2: else you've got in your bed, mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. We're, we talking about, not, we're talking right. about. We're talking about mums and babies. Yeah, absolutely. And babies.
1: Yeah. So tell us a little bit about safety. Why we've had the guidelines that we've got some key
2: risks and benefits. Help us here. Okay, so there's a number of things that are important to to make sure people are aware of, and one is that um, when people bedshare intentionally, it can be a lot safer than when they do it accidentally or without being properly prepared. So we need to talk to parents about whether or not they're going to bedshare, and even if they think they're not going to bedshare, they need to know what the circumstances are that make it more or less hazardous um, in case they end up accidentally doing it so that they can be prepared for that kind of of middle-of-the-night situation where they don't know what to do with the baby. The only thing they can do is bring it into bed. How do they make it as safe as possible? So there there are a number of key hazards that parents need to be aware of um, where the risk associated of SIDS or suffocation associated with bed sharing is really high. So, these are things like the use of alcohol, parental use of alcohol or drugs, uh, parental smoking, um, falling asleep accidentally with the baby, particularly on a sofa. So, sleeping on a sofa is a a known big hazard. Um, Sleeping with a baby who was born premature or low birth weight. So, sleeping with a particularly vulnerable baby. Um, So, those are the things that we emphasize parents should avoid. Um, but if they have a term baby they're not smokers they've not been drink drinking alcohol or taking drugs etc etc um, then it is of no greater risk to the baby if they bedshare with it safely than it is if they put it in a crib by the bed or at least those are the results of the most recent um, SIDS case control studies that have been done in the UK and New Zealand so. There are risks. There are well-identified risks. And from my perspective, it is important to tell parents what those risks are so that they can avoid them. If we Mm -hmm. simply tell parents to never have their baby in bed with them, we shut down that conversation about the things that might be risky for an individual family. And then they might do it anyway. They might do it accidentally, or they might think there's no other. You know, this is the only way I'm going to survive this period. And if they don't know what those risks are and how to avoid them, then we've sort of um, defaulted on our on our duty uh, to to give them the evidence to let them know the information yeah. that's that's available. So I think it's really important to have those conversations. But health professionals have become Certainly in the UK for a period of time until we changed our guidance, health professionals were scared to have those conversations mm-hmm. because they, um, they didn't know what to say. They hadn't been properly trained in talking about it. They'd just been told to say never do it. And so they just said never do it and left it at that.
1: You mentioned some babies which are uh, vulnerable babies. You specifically mentioned the preterm baby, and I would totally agree. Mm-hmm. Are there any other groups for
2: which we need to give a little bit of maybe tailored guidance? Yeah, well, I mean, really the tailored guidance is around the contextual factors. Ah, so, okay. you know, if 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 a baby is exposed to, if the baby was uh, smoke exposed in pregnancy, say, Um, So the mom smoked during pregnancy, then that baby is born with an increased risk of SIDS, but it's also but it's particularly vulnerable to bed sharing SIDS. We don't know why that is. We don't know whether um, that is um, something that wears off over time or if it's a change that's occurred in the baby's brain during gestation that it just isn't as arousable and isn't aware of of. Hazards that, uh, that uh, um, a that a a non smoke exposed baby might be able to uh, um, alleviate. Uh, you know, for instance, if the mum gets the covers too near to the baby's face, what oh. we see in our in our videos is babies will arouse quite quickly. They will bat the covers away. They'll squirm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It'll make mums wake yes. up. The mums will instantly move the covers out of the way. But um, a smoke-exposed baby has a blunted arousal response. So it could be less likely to um, perform that kind of self-preservation behavior. So smoke-exposed babies, premature babies, sort of have the same attributes um, with, with regards to arousal. They're less likely to arouse in dangerous situations. Therefore, it's safer to not have them in situations where that might happen.
1: I want to go to the parental aspect of that arousal. Uh, I have seen some parents, mothers who are so just beyond the beyond exhausted. Mm-hmm. Does
2: that create a hazard for SIDS? That's a difficult one. It's not yeah. really come out very clearly in case control studies, and that, that's probably to do with the difficulty of identifying what tiredness is, how tired is tired, because all right. new moms are tired to some degree. Sure. There was sure. one study that defined it as less than four hours sleep in 24 hours. Oh if my. the mom had had less than four hours sleep in tw- the previous 24 hours, then there was a an association with... Um, an increased chance of SIDS, but there's only been one study that has reported that now. That doesn't mean that it doesn't exist in other studies, but that they might not have asked those questions.
1: Okay, because that's something I've been curious about, and I felt like we don't have much research, or at least not that I was aware of, but I'm, this is, really not even my area of expertise, so Mm -hmm. there's always things I'm not aware of, I thought I would ask. All right, um, I want to go to the differences in approaches between the United States and the United Kingdom, and I also want to point out that this protocol number six has just been revised by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, and it's called Bed Sharing and Breastfeeding, and it was published, of course, in Breastfeeding Medicine. I have a subscription, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you can just get this off the web as well. It's open uh,
2: access yeah.
1: So I know I've just asked you two questions in one breath here, <laughs> but <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, what are the differences between U.S., U.K., and how does that fit with the fact that we've got a document now, a protocol that was done by both U.S. and U.K. authors?
2: Yes, yeah, so I can probably answer this the two questions in one because um, what's happened in the UK over time um, is that possibly, you know, in some part because of the research that we've been doing and the role that I have in the, the Lullaby Trust, which is a cut-death organisation in the UK, um, our guidance has shifted over the last few years um, from being what's called a risk elimination approach Uh, to being a a, a risk um, minimization approach. So instead of trying to get bed sharing mothers to, or, or get mothers, new mothers to never bed share, which is risk elimination, We've shifted to talking to parents about what is actually hazardous, and we're trying to minimize the risk of bed sharing. So for some people, there's no increased risk. They don't have to stop bed sharing, but for others, there is. So we're targeting the attention on making sure that they know what to avoid. In the US, you're still um, pretty much using a, a risk elimination approach. Mm. Um, and so everybody's, there's blanket recommendation for everybody that they don't bed share. Um, that, that's the, you know, basically the big difference between what's happened in the US and the UK and more and more countries are starting to adopt that kind of risk minimization approach. So what's happened when we've written the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine protocol, that's a worldwide protocol. That's for anybody, anywhere, um, who's a, who's a clinician who's working with breastfeeding families. Um, so we have to reflect, you know, the bigger picture, not, not just what's going on in the US. So the, that document presents a risk minimization approach as the recommendation rather than a risk elimination approach because that is the most effective thing for supporting breastfeeding, but also because it appears as though telling everybody not to bedshare is actually not reducing SIDS. We need to be targeting the ones for whom Bed sharing is hazardous?
1: Well, I have two responses to that. First of all, I learned early in my career that anytime that the quote experts unquote come out with a one size fits all recommendation, my antennas go right up.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the second thing is, I would like to bring everybody's attention to the fact that what Dr. Ball just said fits very nicely with what I see on page two of that protocol. Table one lists hazardous risk factors or circumstances during bed sharing. And table two lists elements of safe bed sharing advice in order of importance. So this is well worth looking at. Again, you can download that. And you should download that if you are trying to change policy in your hospital or if you are in the community and you're trying to give what seems to me like uh, kind of real life advice. And Dr. Ball, you have really given me a major mindset change here, which is I really like that idea of risk minimization because we are all at risk for something. But, mm-hmm. how do we reduce our risk uh that's it that I think that will be a major mind sh- shift <laughs> here in the u s <laughs> We only have a minute or so left. Is there anything left that that you would like to address before we
2: go out today? Well, I suppose you know given that your 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 show comes from the u s it might be worth saying that I suspect it was easier for us to change the guidance in the u k because we're a smaller country. And in the US, you know, you've got such a huge population um, with a lot more variation in practices, but also, you know, you've got a lot many more minds to change on a subject That's like true. this. It's yeah. bound to take a lot longer to turn, you know, the ocean liner that is the US <laughs> than it was to 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 turn the dinghy that is the UK. Um, but I would encourage you not to give up I think there are you know the things like this Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine protocol are going to have an influence Absolutely. and things are changing in the US definitely um oh. I think you know th- think positively for the future um and I think giving have encouraging parents to make informed choices around these kinds of things like um, whether or not they bed share, you know, is is becoming more um, likely in the U.S.
1: Indeed. Well, what a great note to end on. Thank you so much to Dr. Helen Ball for being with us today. You're, thank you. You're welcome. And thank you to all of you who are listening. Without listeners, I wouldn't have a show, and I really enjoy doing this. So thank you so much for listening, and be sure to tune in next week. In the meanwhile, remember, your baby was born to be breastfed. Have a great week.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Biancuso next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week, do its best for you and your baby.